Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Welcome into the show this Friday, October the 18th. Coming up in just a few minutes, we are going to be joined by Soccer America's Paul Kennedy to talk all kinds of different things. Especially, uh, we're gonna we're gonna probably dig into some stuff on uh, the U.S. Men's National Team as well. Um, a story that we've been uh, sitting on this week. Um, is one that I wanted to get to, and and we just kept running out of time on the shows, and I wanted to make it a point to to, to lead off the show today uh, talking about Carly Lloyd. Carly Lloyd is one of the greatest U.S. Uh, U.S. women's national team players to have ever worn the jersey. Um, she is uh, in the twilight of her career um, as as she is in her late 30s. And uh, in a recent article, uh, talked about how this summer's World Cup role was the worst time of her life. Uh, in, an, in an interview this week uh, with uh, uh, Julie Foudy, she spoke about her frustrations and, uh, in, in, in particular, her diminished role on the U.S. women's national team after the 2016 Olympics and, uh, and the toll the past three years uh, took on her professionally and personally. Now, one of the most difficult things that you can do as an athlete, any person, is when you're coming to the end of your career and, and, it's, it's oftentimes difficult to deal with the realities of the fact that you're not as good as you used to be. And uh, you may still want to contribute, may still like you feel uh, still feel like you can contribute. And it's and it's often a difficult thing. And it's and it's a difficult thing on the flip side from a leadership management standpoint. How do you deal with those players who, you know, are maybe not quite in their prime, but still valuable contributors, leaders, etc. And it's a hard thing to do uh, to be able to to execute on that uh, and, and execute well. Lloyd went on to say, I'm not going to lie and sugarcoat it. It was absolutely the worst time of my life. It affected my relationship with my husband, friends. It, it really was rock bottom of my entire career. But somehow you see light at the end of the tunnel. And I can honestly say I'm having more fun now playing than I ever have in my career. I think I just learned a lot throughout it. Um, she, she blamed a little bit of, of her troubles over the last few years with the U S women's national team on a badly sprained ankle suffered, uh, while playing for the Houston dash in the NWSL in 2017, and uh, that was right around the time that Jill Ellis was shifting to a 4-3-3 formation. Um, she's traditionally always tried to play and, and, and enjoyed playing as an attacking midfielder. And uh, but that generally was taking place in a, in a different setup than than what the U.S. women's national team was kind of shifting into. And. Um, she had some other comments and some of these other comments were comments that uh, some have deemed to be a little controversial, to be honest. They, they've kind of, you know, given her a little hard time about some of these comments. Uh, I think I've got a little bit different take on these, uh, but uh, nonetheless, the, these are some of the comments she said that, that really stood out and, and received some criticism. She said, there's no denying it. I deserve to be on that field, that whole world cup, but I wasn't. And I think I've grown as a person, as a player. It sucked. It absolutely sucked. I was super, super, excuse me, I was super happy for my teammates and happy for Megan. She was referring to Megan Rapino, who put the team on her back and for several other players. It was great to see. And I'm happy that I could still have been a part of it. Um, she's gotten some, some flack. Um, for the fact that she said, there's no denying it. I deserve to be on that field, the whole world cup, but I wasn't. And here's my take on this. Oftentimes it's really hard for athletes to figure out 
when when the end is the end. Um, it's 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 difficult to do, and and sometimes you don't feel like you're at the end. Um, sometimes circumstances happen, like a badly sprained ankle, and you find yourself on the outside looking in of what you think or wish or hope was an opportunity, and that and those are all valid points. But my take on this is the mentality of Carly Lloyd in this interview is why she is one of the greatest U.S. women's national team players of all time. It is what is lacking in the U.S. men's national team. So rather than sit here and pile on like so many others have done and criticized Carly for her comments, I applaud them. Who cares? She feels that way. That's why she's so good. That's why the best are the best. There is no Cristiano Ronaldo or Leo Messi if they didn't look themselves in the mirror and go, I'm the best. I deserve to be here. That level of confidence is required to be great. As a coach and as a dad, I've always tried to teach my players or or my own kids this concept. That before you can get to a place where you are unbeatable, you first have to get comfortable. If you're not comfortable, you're never going to get to a place where you can dominate. And so there's really kind of three stages that that a player has to get to in the, and it's that final stage where Michael Jordan, Messi and others have separated themselves from everyone else. So the first level, the first phase is you got to get comfortable. You got to get comfortable in your own skin. You got to get comfortable in your environment. You got to be comfortable with who you are, how good you are comfortable with the idea that you deserve to be there. If you don't believe it, no one else will. You have to get comfortable. Secondly, that comfort has to lead, and it does, it builds into confidence. You have to be certain, not just comfortable, but certain of your greatness. Certain of how good you are and how good you can be. Certainty does not mean that you don't work. Certainty does not mean that you don't put in the hours that is required to become great. But it does mean that when you look yourself in the mirror, you know, you don't hope, you know that you're good. You know that you're great. And finally, it leads to a healthy level of cockiness. If you watch, if you go back and watch Michael Jordan, clips of Michael Jordan, go back and watch Ronaldinho, you watch Messi, you watch Ronaldo, you watch these players. Think back to the 2015 World Cup. The comment that came from Carly Lloyd, there's no denying it. I deserve to be on that field that whole World Cup, but I wasn't. Is the same mentality, the same cockiness, the same confidence that is required to not only have the idea, have the audacity, but be willing to put your neck on the line to take the shot in that 2015 World Cup to beat the keeper from the center line. Moxie. 
instead of getting on or piling on or beating up Carly Lloyd for her comments, I think, I think we should instead be celebrating it. We don't have enough of that moxie within U.S. soccer, especially in our, in our national team programs on the men's side. And going forward, as players like Carly Lloyd are reaching the, the twilights of their career, we need the next generation of our U.S. women's national team to assume that mantle of cockiness, boldness, brashness, to step up to the plate and take their shot. I love it. I love what she said. I wish more of our players had that in them. I wish more of our coaches had that in them. Not because of delusion. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying be delusional. I'm not saying that that you get there and you get lazy. I'm saying do it. Put in the work. Believe in yourself. And don't be ashamed of it. And when you do mess up, You look in the mirror and you say, look, I I messed up. You look in the camera and say, I own it. It's my fault. I messed up. Whatever the case is, you own it. There's There's a level of accountability with yourself before anyone else. A player like that doesn't reach that level without personal accountability. You hold yourself to higher standards. You hold yourself to standards that, that stretch you, that force you to train, that force you to put in the hours. Because not only do you believe in yourself, you are committed to becoming the greatest version of yourself. So you get comfortable. That comfort, that comfort builds into confidence. That confidence that assuredness leads to cockiness. And when you get cocky, when you find a cocky player who, who, who has talent and who has put in the time, watch out because they are the most dangerous player on the field. And we need more of those in American soccer. So kudos to Carly. Kudos to what, what she said. I don't think she should be getting any flack for it. If anything, I think she, she should be celebrated for, uh, for speaking up, speaking her mind and demonstrating yet again what it means to have the mentality of a champion. Uh, so I appreciate her words and, uh, and her honesty and her feelings about uh, what transpired over the last three years and especially this summer. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand. You can learn more about Ductic Brand at D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. Again, that is DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. We'll be right back after this with Paul Kennedy.
Welcome back into the show. It is Friday, October the 18th, and we are delighted to be joined again by Paul Kennedy. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you doing there this morning? Doing well, doing well, and uh, we're happy to have you on the show. Uh, Wanted to... First, kind of uh, pick your brain and see uh, what you thought of the debacle in Toronto. Uh, I don't know if that's the official title, but uh, that's the working title for this morning. Uh, the U.S. men's national team falling to Canada for the first time in 34 years, 2-0 uh, in Toronto. What did you see and what have you heard since? Um the title that I used was Lost in Toronto, so I'm sure we got probably out there 10 to 20 different uh, descriptions of what happened. And my point would be is that uh, the concerning point was is uh, it wasn't just the fact that they lost to a you know a Canadian team that obviously had had a lot uh, on the line and was very uh, inspired, but that the U.S. they, they just looked lost. And, uh, the, you know, the players, when they got behind, you know, nothing really happened. And it isn't, you know, and after the game, Greg Berhalter said, well, you know, they should have gotten, you know, basically said they should have gotten stuck in more. And, uh, you know, I mean, to me, that's not the problem. There's never been a problem with the U.S. team about, you know, uh, playing hard. And so that's the part that was probably the most concerning. Um, I think it reflects a couple of things, which is, uh, the fact that you know you obviously have a young team, but also you have an inexperienced coach who seems to have gone in a direction that uh, uh, the players have had difficulty buying into, only because what he's trying to do was really difficult. And it's also something where you know as a national team coach, uh, you know you, you really you don't have a lot of time with players, and and to try to build a quote system, whether or not there is a system or whatever is, is a very uh, dangerous thing. Um, it's interesting to see the, you know, reaction over the last couple of days since then, Wednesday and even yesterday, Thursday is, it's amazing how people still talk about it. Um, what I find also interesting is that even though a lot of people have said uh, they have no, they've lost interest in the team, they're no longer following it. Um, you know, uh, those that remain are, you know, you know, incredibly passionate about it and feel very strongly about it in a good way. And so from that point of view, uh, the fact that a lot of people care is very important. Um, I think there's a disconnect with the Federation. A lot of people say the Federation, uh, uh, you know, has no connection to the fans and they don't care about the fans and whether or not that's true or not is is irrelevant in that if that perception's out there, that's a huge problem. And the last thing is that, you know, still people are watching the team, meaning the uh, we had in uh, Thursday Soccer America uh, a look at the TV audiences for the men's and women's uh, for August, September, and October. And on just, even just English language, forget the issue of Spanish language where you have a lot of fans, and especially the men's national team still draws very well and is drawing surprisingly well, is, uh, you know, the men's games are more watched than the women, you know, something that, uh, you know, a lot of people would find hard to believe. When we looked at, uh, when we look at that performance uh, on uh, Tuesday night, um you know the the biggest thing for me going into the game, and and I I told some people um, moments before the game even kicked off. If Canada wins, I will not be surprised. This was this was something that um, I don't think anyone should be shocked at the loss. Uh, there's been nothing in a in in a matter of consistency of performances um, in the last two years since the debacle with uh, qu- failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup um, in in October of 2017 against Trinidad and Tobago. We haven't seen substantive. Uh, what I would consider like major milestone progress. You know, we went about a year with an interim manager and Dave Sarakin, and then we, the, the worst kept secret, I think of all time in us soccer, uh, 
we announce Greg Berhalter. Greg comes in, and 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 yet it's still kind of been blasé, kind of a malaise. There's not really been any true signs of progress. Um, you know, even since Greg Berhalter took over, um, and you go into that game and you, in, in, from the very first kickoff, um, you know, you, you just saw, you know, Canada had the ball to, to kick off the game and, and the U S couldn't get the ball. And when they got it, they couldn't keep it. And it just kept continuing, kept continuing, kept continuing. And, um, you know, I wasn't surprised which is the sad part of this. I wasn't surprised based on the, the trends that we've seen. And, uh, you know, Canada got all that they deserved out of that match. And, uh, you know, had every reason to celebrate uh, afterwards. And uh, I think there's every bit uh, of reason and justification for consternation and concern and panic and outrage by U.S. soccer fans at the state of the U.S. men's national team program. And look, I think you can set aside you know, styles, right? Playing styles. If, you know, depending on the coach and the manager, maybe they have one, you know, one style of play they prefer of the other. My bigger issue isn't, you know, whether Greg Berhalter fashions himself as, you know, a Pep Guardiola uh, inspired coach who wants to play a a brand of possession-based soccer. Personally, that's my favorite style of play. I'm fine with that if that's what you want to do. My bigger concern is what what I would call a lack of leadership and that lack of leadership for me is showing up in a couple different ways. His comments always seem to be trying to deflect or put blame on the players or something else that bothers me. Another aspect of the lack of leadership for me is if you are a leader, one of your jobs, one of your roles is to provide vision and teaching and, and being able to communicate your ideas in a way, not just where you understand them, but, but those who are under your, your coaching can hear them and understand them, process them, comprehend them. Um, and, and so we're not seeing that. And then on top of it, we're not seeing this hunger and passion, uh, this fight on the field. And, you know, I think that that goes back to a culture issue uh, within that locker room, within the team, uh, you know, despite the words that we hear that, you know, the, these, te- the, these players are all in and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, we're building something here. What We're not seeing that from a process standpoint play out. I get every now and then a team's going to have a result that is just going to go against you and, and everything's going to go wrong. I understand that. No, no one is expecting any team, whether it's a U.S. men's national team or U.S. women's national team to be perfect and win every time and win by a gazillion goals. However, we should be able to see over the course of time, if we're looking at data points, um, you know, trends, some positive momentum and positive growth from from the the way that the team is playing whatever that style may be and and also the way uh the team is performing communicating showing that hunger and desire you know those kind of things and and for that reason it it makes me very concerned uh about the state of where this u.s men's national team program is because I see on a macro level a lot of issues that go beyond just, hey, I, I didn't get my tactics right in this one match. Uh, are you hearing similar things from people around the country that are following this, uh, you know, it, whether on or off the record in terms of just seeing the angst about where we are as a program uh, on a macro level? Um, yes, obviously. And I think... Uh to talk about a couple of the points that you just mentioned. I think, uh, you know, communication and leadership, you know, leadership and communication go together and that a leader wants to communicate uh, his vision or her version to those that work for him, in this case, a coach and his players. I think one of the big issues is with Greg Berhalter is fine and good, he's got this, you know, uh, this vision. 
let's say it's a good one for argument's sake, he still has to be able to communicate that to his players. And if the players aren't understanding it, it isn't necessarily the player's fault. It's, it's the communication. And again, as a national team coach, you do not have a lot of time to work with players. And, you know, so much, so often we've heard, um, uh, in the last couple of games, issues related to, you know, the video the players watch. You know, if I'm a national team player who has come over from Europe and has a couple of days with a team, the last thing I want to do, and the last thing I want to do because I'm probably jet lagged, is sit and watch a lot of film. And so, you know, I think he's, you know, he's trying to, uh, you know, he's too ambitious. Where I think a lot of national team coaches, and the example would be, say, with, I think both with uh, Jurgen Klinsmann and Bob Bradley and, and Bruce Arena, the success they had was when they were, when they were a lot more practical. And, you know, obviously that's only one part of it in that, you know, we have a, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, right now we have a thin player pool, and for however good we think these young players are, I mean, you know, uh, you know, two years on, who would have thought Christian Pulisic would be in the situation is now, you know, not even getting off the bench at Chelsea, uh, and uh, you know, forever much, you know, everyone wants Josh Sargent to uh, be on the field, you know, against uh, Canada on Tuesday night, he looked lost. And so, uh, you know, uh, the predicament is, is that it's going to take time. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that time, uh, uh, is going to come, uh, to a halt when we have qualifying start for the next world cup, which will be, uh, in less than a year. When we look at uh, a point that you just brought up about video coming, players coming in on international break and then you know spending time with a lot of video session teaching, um, with the way that technology is today, I can I can take a video and send it to anyone in the world in in a second. Um, why are we not? If we have a player pool, why aren't we sending these things out ahead of time? Why are we waiting and trying to cram for the proverbial test the day before a match? Um, I think I, you know, I don't know the answer to, I want to say I, I, the circumstances of what video and how often and what uh, it sent out, I don't know, but I'm sure, uh, players are getting stuff. Although Greg said early on in the process is that when players are with their clubs, he does not want to overload them with quote national team related stuff because, you know, you know, their focus, first focus is going to be on their club and he, and he, and he doesn't want to interfere with that, which is understandable. Um, you know, so I, I wouldn't say that they don't do that. I, I think, you know, Greg has said why he doesn't want to do a lot of that. Well, when I look at something like like video, for example, if it's a you know three minute clip of hey, th- this is something at our next camp we're going to focus on, um, I'm pretty sure that in the life of a professional footballer, they can find three minutes to watch and re- and and hear a yeah, quick yeah, review. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I yeah, f- no, yeah, yeah um, you know. So I think you know, I'm not you know. I don't know what they're doing between camps. Um, I think the issue is, is a little bit is at the camp, uh, they're getting overloaded in ways that, you know, if you're uh, a professional, a young professional, uh, the danger is, is that they're going to get overloaded and they're going to turn off. And to me, a little bit, the issue is, the question was, and, and, and especially in the Canada game, is that they just, you know, uh, they looked lost and, you know, the body language wasn't great. It wasn't, say, the example would be, you know, uh, you know let's say the, the U.S.-Costa Rica game of 2016, where the U.S. lost in San Jose 4 nothing, and, and the game cost Erin uh, Klinsman his job. The point was that game, the players, you know, they gave up that game, you know, and I don't think they gave up, but they just didn't know what to do. And that's, uh, you know, as, as a coach, I would be concerned with that. And, you know, the, you know, 
that's where there should be a lot of uh, soul searching of, of how the direction of the team is based upon that. One of the things I think when we get back to kind of communication is, um, you know, the the ability to explain yourself in in kind of simple. Uh, but impactful ways, being able to reduce information down to bite size, pro, you know, uh, bits of information that, that is easily processed and, and prime, you know, a player for action. Um, you know, one of, one of the things my dad used to say to me growing up was, do you have something to say or are you just saying something? And uh, it was his way of trying to teach me about, you know, mean what you say, be, you know, come to a point, come to an idea. Don't just ramble for ramble's sake. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, as coaches, uh, if I'm putting my coaching hat on for a moment, we have a lot of ideas, a lot of things that we want to teach. Maybe it's, you know, a curriculum that includes playing out from the back, how we want to do restarts of play, free kicks, corner kicks, uh, you know, possession in this part of the field versus, um, you know, maybe the back half of the field. What, whatever the case may be, we have all these things, this, this kind of macro big picture level uh, view uh, of our philosophy and how we want to play. The tough thing is sometimes is figuring out how much to say and in, in what way can we package what we're saying so that players can get it without being overwhelmed and overloaded. Uh, that seems to be a recurring theme that you keep bringing up that you keep hearing is this players being overloaded or overwhelmed uh, by information. Um, yeah. And I think the one thing to add there is that one of the problems the team has is among themselves, they don't have a lot of experienced players or a lot of, quote, leaders that, you know, stand out. And the point being that uh, the, the communication has to, between a coach and his players, has to be two ways in that, uh, um, if the players aren't uh, understanding, liking the, the you know whatever whatever the disconnect is, the, the leaders of the team have to go back to the coach and say, look, you know, we got to find a different way to do this. And I don't think that's easily done with this team because uh, you know they're not a lot of leaders. Meaning the natural leader of the team for years was Michael Bradley in a good way, but he hasn't been you know he's in and out of the team and. You have a player like probably the most, the player with probably the most leadership qualities among the young players is Tyler Adams, and he hasn't been in the team since March. He's been with the Thurhalter once. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that's an, another issue, I think, that, you know, uh, hurts the, the ability to progress as a team, let alone, you know, is going to be an issue when you're in games uh, trying to solve problems uh, among themselves. If we zoom out a little bit from the U.S. men's national team, uh, you know, speaking specifically of this squad and this coaching staff, and kind of, kind of go the next layer up, and we, and we start to look at you know available players, player pool, etc. Uh, one of the things that plays into that is development, the system, the structure. Um, U.S. soccer has been, you know, married to Major League Soccer since its inception for the last couple of decades. That that has been their league of choice, their their league of preferred pathway, development of players, at least until the age of 18, uh, until they can, you know, maybe leave the shores and head to Europe uh, if they don't have a European passport. And, and that has been kind of their primary uh, vehicle uh, for player development. When we look at our national team and we look at the player pool of available players and we're saying the player pool is thin and we don't have enough leaders, we don't have enough mature seasoned players, um, at what point do questions need to start being asked of those uh, in charge uh, at a layer above this national team in terms of the overall uh, you know, picture of player development the system, the structure, uh, 
Why are we not producing more uh, Weston McKinney's, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic's for a country this large, this many resources? We have millions of registered players within uh, the Soccer Federation, one of the largest uh, uh, amounts of registered players in the world. Uh, Why are we not producing higher level players through our system uh, so that we're not looking at, you know, a dearth of talent uh, at the present uh, U.S. men's national team squad and setup? Um, to me, it's sort of a tough question in that you could look ahead to what is coming up from down below and the talent pool is much, much deeper and much more talented. And I would say, you know, a lot of that is is the investment that's been made in the last five years in in player development. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some really huge issues to what I would say is some, uh, you know, uh, not crazy, but, you know, really bad situations going on related to, say, the Federation, which has turned into... Uh, you know the, na- the the program be- below the national team um, is producing good teams despite itself in terms of its dysfunction and in terms of its inability to uh, to staff itself. Um, I think the issues of and, and and at the same time you could say well you know if if the players right now at the ages of eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. Um, of which probably two thirds of them in Europe or one third of them are in MLS is, you know, the deepest pool the U.S. has ever had. It still needs to be twice as deep as that to uh, to allow for the numbers game to take effect, which is, you know, for every, you know, five players that come along that have great talent, you know, the reality is that the odds are that one of them is going to make it. Um, so you look at other countries, you know, like France, like the Netherlands right now, where they just have that many more players coming up, you know, and there you look at just the nature of the, of our country and that we say we're a soccer country, but we're really, you know, the, the soccer interest is very uh, thin. Um, and I think, you know, for all the registered players, you know, you know, the 90% of them are, 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 are playing at a very uh, nominal level. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and a lot of countries around the world, they don't register, you know, players aren't registered like that. They're, you know, they're registered when, only when they're playing on a, you know, a, you know, a comp- not competitive necessarily, but an organized club. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, the, the problems that exist are, are you know, quite daunting um, but you know I think uh, you know I remain optimistic even though the US right now looks in a diff- difficult position only because I would say it's night and day difference between five years ago and the players coming up and there's many factors to that you know the development the resources that are available the understanding of the players understanding of their parents and those around them of what's required is it's just, you know, that much better so that these players, you know, and there's also for the first time a semblance of a pathway in a sport in a country where there's no simple or easy pathway that, you know, would exist in other American sports or in terms of soccer in uh, other parts of the world. But you're starting to see some of that pathway in some parts of the country that are, uh, allowing players to move along a lot faster. When we look at the uh, the men's program uh, at large, again a little bit uh, above the, the the present day recent debacle in Toronto, we and look at the squad. We look at what you were just talking about about this next kind of crop of players. Um, 
you know, that are that are either knocking on the door of of, be, of entering the senior national team program or uh, just behind them. Uh, one of the things that we we have to keep in mind is that the the men's uh, Olympic team has failed to qualify for the last two Olympics. Uh, we have next year's Olympics uh, right around the corner. Uh, how critical is it with everything going on right now on the men's national team senior team struggles uh, that? that you know have have not really been cured over the last two years you know as we've talked about uh, still kind of uh, trying to just tread water much less make progress how critical is it for the the men's olympic team to qualify uh this you know for this upcoming uh tournament next summer uh, is it, if if not do we do we find more pressure building even on the, the national team with a third successive failure to qualify for the Olympics? Um, oh, you know, obviously it's, it's, you know, it would be, you know, you know, really bad. Um, and, you know, you, again, you can look on paper, the, the pool of that play of the, of the U23s, which are mostly the last two uh, U20 teams, you know, you even have guys like a, uh, Gio Reyna on the U17s, uh, you know, is tremendous. But the problem is a little bit, which should, you know, which shouldn't affect uh, qualifying because, again, it's CONCACAF, which, you know, again, if you can't get out of CONCACAF, you really got to wonder what's going on. The reality is, is that, is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of players, but clubs releasing them is going to be uh, dicey because they're not required to. Um, and, uh, you know, but as I said, meaning that, you know, we should be able to qualify for the Olympics with our under 23 B or C team. If not, you know, there is a problem. And, uh, you know, it would be, you know, um, terrible. But again, you know, you look at something like, you know, uh, the U-20s made it to the uh, uh, quarterfinals in Poland. Third straight time they made it to the quarterfinals. But, uh, you know, that's where I say there's, you know, a current disconnect and dysfunction in that, you know, that the coach of that team, Tal Ramos, you know, has been shunted. And I would imagine would be... Uh, uh, soon departing uh, the Federation only because of lack of uh, 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 lack of opportunities to move forward and is within the Federation. And again, to me, it goes back to so many issues relate to the fallout from that qualifying in uh, you know for the 2018 World Cup in Trinidad in that. The consequence to that was Senor Galati decided not to run for president again, which meant that, and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that he had done up until then was now going to be dismantled. And uh, the example to that was, you know, Tab Ramos was obviously Senil's guy and, and would have likely, I'm not sure, uh, uh, 100% or more than two-thirds likely, but he would have been likely to have been the, the national team coach uh, after the 2018 World Cup after Bruce Arena stepped aside. So, you know, again, you know, uh, a lot of the issues we've, you know, we're talking about come back to a situation where we're dealing with a federation right now that is really uh, um, uh, letterless. We have a rudderless uh, federation for sure. A lot of issues. Uh, another thing that that I'm looking at uh, the Olympics, uh, and then what comes next? 2022 World Cup uh, qualifications, as well as you know the the actual 2022 World Cup. Looking at where we are, looking at trends. Um, I I don't see this men's national team. 
making it easy on themselves. Uh, as you mentioned, it's CONCACAF. We should be able to uh, with, without too many issues, but I, I don't see that. I see it being a struggle, uh, at least in, uh, unless uh, you know some some uh, leadership changes uh, take place. I see that this, this qualification being a struggle, just like the 2018 uh, qualification ended up being a struggle. Uh, as you kind of look ahead over the next, uh, you know, 12, 18, 24 months getting ready for 2022. Uh, do you see the same same signs that, that this is going to be a grind to try to qualify uh, on the men's side for the 2022 World Cup? Um, I would say, you know, it's in some form or another, it's always been a grind. The way the away matches are always tough ones. But um, what the U.S. always had was a confidence and a swagger about themselves that uh, they always got through it somehow. They also always benefited from the fact that uh, at least one or two of the other key teams in CONCACAF, typically in Central America, but sometimes in the Caribbean, uh, just, you know, uh, imploded. Uh, a lot of times it would be, you know, because the, their federation was messed up and they would make impulsive coaching changes or, you know, they, they would always benefit from the other teams uh, falling apart. Last time a little bit, uh, that wasn't the case. You had Panama, you know, coming through finally and qualifying. And, uh, uh, but the, and you know, and the other example would be Honduras, which in another, another cycle would have fired their coach because of some bad results, you know, you got to remember is they lost to the U.S. six uh, nothing in uh, San Jose in Arena's first game in March of 2017. But uh, you know they held the course. Um, how the teams are, you know, going forward uh, remains to be seen. You know, the Gold Cup, the Central American teams were not very strong this time. So from that point of view. Uh, you know, that works in the U.S.'s favor, but it can't ever be in a situation relying upon the other teams to uh, to collapsing to, uh, to qualify. So uh, backing out of the whole men's national team set up the the uh, Olympics, World Cup, etc. Uh, let's get to some some, uh, some other things uh, with Soccer America. What are some stories that you guys are covering uh, that you find uh, interesting? Uh, whatever. Uh, what, what what what's going on in Soccer America world that uh, that we need to know about? Um, I think some of the things that we've covered recently. A lot of them are are federation related. A lot of them are things that uh, go to what I say is a dysfunction, the disconnect uh, between the Federation and its members. And even beyond that, not just its members, but the, the soccer community at large, because a lot of cases you have uh, communities that, uh, and groups that feel uh, left out, neglected, disenfranchised, whatever you want to refer to it. Um, and a couple of examples would be, you know, we wrote uh, recently about um, so much was made after Carlos Cordero became president about um, starting a task force to look at all the, all the issues related to youth soccer and the million things that people say they don't like about it. And it turned out that, uh, you know, after, you know, I don't, remember the exact time frame, but probably say a year, uh, when it finally came out who, were, who was on the various committees, there wasn't one Latino, I mean, uh, Latino man on, the, on any of the committees. And again, it just showed, you know, the lack of, uh, you know, that the, the lack of understanding of what's going on. And to me, it wasn't just an issue of the Federation, it was the issue of the group's meaning the, the organizations that are under the Federation, uh, U.S. Club, USYS, AYSO, SAY, USSA, all these youth soccer organizations, um, you know, and their own uh, dysfunction. 
Um, a lot of people look at it in the context of, say, the national teams where you look at the youth national teams right now and the number of Hispanic players aren't, is, uh, has risen uh, incredibly. Um, uh, most of the teams are at least 50% Latino and some of them are 80 or 90% Latino. Um, and to me it goes to is that um, a lot of these youth organizations uh, their concerns are not the, the same as even the concerns of, say, the Federation, that they're not worried about uh, producing players for national teams. They're, they're, you know, they're worried about the little things that they're trying to do each day to, uh, to move forward that are unrelated to that. And some of, some of them are legitimate issues such as uh, opportunities to provide better coaching, better access to fields, better refereeing, but then a lot of them are also things like uh, turf wars and and things like that over you know registration and and and, and that. Um, so that's one of the things that you know we've been working on. And the other one recently was the whole issue of uh, the Women's World Cup, FIFA coming in and in a good way uh, starting a program to give money back to teams whether it's a pro team or, or the youth teams that a player played on and compensating them in the same way obviously much more uh, modest in scope uh, uh, what they do with the men's clubs around the world which is, is sort of uh, you know sort of in that situation paying them off for you know uh, allowing them to uh, be released and it turned out the federation never uh, let the, the youth clubs know what was going on. Um, and the issue has since been resolved since we wrote about the story. Uh, but what it goes to, to me, is uh, the fact that the federation is so overwhelmed um, by any number of issues that, um, you know, they, you know, couldn't let their members know that, you know, this thing's out there. And even if it's not a matter of knowing the exact process or the way it's going to work to at least let them know what was going on. So to me, that one is as much symptomatic of, 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 of the issues going on in Chicago right now that, that, that are unresolved. So when we look at the, the myriad of issues, obviously it goes beyond the U.S. national team losing in Toronto to Canada. It's 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 even bigger. There there, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. When we really dig in, as you guys have done with some of your coverage, we find that these issues, you know, they're ongoing. Um, they they go beyond just you know an isolated incident. It's not one thing. It's a collection of things, and and it's it's in and through that lens that we see, um, you know, these things pile up as as systemic, as systematic structural problems. Whether that's um, you know a- administrative processes, etc. Um, and in in light of that, um, you know. A lot of the speculation has been, uh, you know, that the Federation, you know, they they had basically held the the head coaching spot for Greg Berhalter. Uh, his brother is the COO of U.S. Soccer. Another rumor, and, and there's been a lot of consternation over this, a lot of uh, reviews with Glassdoor about, you know, the, the culture within U.S. Soccer uh, that, that, you know, Jay Burhalter covets that CEO position that he wants it. Um, you know, are you hearing anything in regards to that? I mean, if, if he is the COO and we're having all of these administrative issues, how, how does the Federation and the board uh, even look internally for solutions? Why, you know, wh- why would we not be trying to look outside if we are continually uh, running into issue after issue, which has also resulted in lawsuit after lawsuit Etc. Um, are you hearing anything on the CEO search? Um, what we've heard is that they, you know, that the Glassdoor reviews uh, put a stop to the process that was in place, which would have likely led to uh, Jay Berhalter's selection as the next CEO. 
Um, they are in the process of starting a new search and starting from scratch. Um, I would imagine, uh, I'll put it this way. Uh, the problem, you know, and this is, this is on the, this is, uh, you know, so on everybody who works at the Federation or is on a board or is involved in the Federation is that, uh, they act like these Glassdoor reviews were a surprise. You know, they recognize that they're the reality, but, you know, you know, any organization should recognize that when you got a problem, you know, it might not be able to fix it. You might not be able to, you know, uh, fix it right away, but you should at least recognize it. And that to me is the most concerning thing is they act like, you know, they didn't know it, but they recognize now what the problem is. And, um, you know, I would be shocked if Jay Burrell got the job, I would be shocked. And, um, you know, I mean, that would go to the fact that uh, uh, when Dan Flynn left, that Brian Remedy was uh, given the, uh, I don't think, interim position of CEO, but he was named the chief administrative officer, a title he actually used to have, which makes him the sort of highest-ranking officer of the Federation right now, above Jay Berhalter. Um, still, the issue is to find someone from the outside who would want the job. And I have written about it before, is that that's the biggest issue. Um, you know, I've been told that the, the search was down to, in June, was down to three people, Berhalter, Brian Remedy, and uh, a television executive. Um, I would imagine now they're going to look at a much wider search. You know, I know people who have been contacted about it, uh, what, asking whether they're interested in, uh, would be interested in the position. But the reality is, is that the Federation, uh, this, you know, what they're involved, you know, to take the job is a no-win situation and that, uh, it's so complex and it's such a daunting uh, position on a good day. But that, on top of that, you have all the lawsuits which have really uh, make it so that if, you know, if you're a, a, an ambitious executive um, and are offered an opportunity to, quote, uh, turn around a, a, a company, um, you'll find that attractive but the point is, is that you'll want you're, you want to be able to uh, uh, dictate uh, what is done, and in this case, because of all the lawsuits, uh, you know, the lawyers are running the show, um, and that's and that's the problem. I mean, I would say that you know, I each of the lawsuits individually, there are cases to be made on the Federation side, and some of them are actually very sympathetic to their position. But when you add them all collectively, it's a nightmare. And, you know, I don't see how they're going to be able to extract themselves from uh, the legal situation they're in and will be in, say, next year, where everything will be dominated by any number of lawsuits, whether it's the NESL suit, uh, the women's suit, the Hope Solo suit, um, you know, you have the relevant case, which again came up in the last uh, 24 hours with La Liga, you know, proposing to play another game in Miami. So, you know, if, if you're a CEO uh, wanting to take that position at the Federation, it would be, uh, you know, hard to find good people. Last question on all of this for for today, at least. I mean, we could we could we could go four hours, I think, on a variety of topics and still barely scratch the surface. When we look at all of the you know uh, changes, the task force, um, you know the the leadership uh, problems, uh, culture issues we're seeing within the federation. How important is it, do you think, for the for for U.S. soccer to adopt some form of the Rooney Rule when it comes to hiring, task force committees, etc.? Um, I think I think it's you know essential. Meaning, I'm not sure what form that would take, but uh, 
you know, it would be, it would go a long ways towards uh, um, opening things up, put it that way. Um, meaning that right now, you know, uh, if, if you just look within who you know, uh, who you know is just like you. And uh, who you know is, is uh, a same limited group of bodies within the Federation, which, and by that meaning that, uh, you know, you look at the task force that we talked about, who did they hire? All the people that they knew who worked at state associations or within the national organizations of the youth organizations. Um, so, uh, and that, that's just not good enough. And it's you know uh, um, you know the the you know the thing about the uh, a quote Rooney rule is that you know there's the benefit there of looking at uh, a diverse group within the body of of, uh, of athletes and coaches and administrators that exist to make sure that that uh, diversity is uh, examined and uh, you know. You look at the federation. You go to the AGM, and the makeup of that body is uh, is doesn't reflect our soccer country, let alone our country. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, the more I think about it, the more um, you know I, I've been around the federation at a national level with national councils uh etc and you look through you know who is in in what positions where i think it's gonna i think that that these type of changes are going to have to be intentional uh policy changes in order for us to change the culture uh, we do have a culture problem i do think it needs to get changed and i do think it's going to require some policy changes in order for us to get there um in the future paul i appreciate you coming on the show um and uh really uh you know uh, i'm thankful that we had a chance to, to to connect again how can people follow your work and uh and read soccer america and and get it delivered into their mailbox um you know each and every day um you can subscribe to soccer america you can go to socceramerica.com and sign up uh we have various offers on there um and you can also follow me on twitter at uh pk edit and uh um so I look forward for everyone to uh, follow what we do. Well, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. We uh, we really appreciate your time. Good luck with Soccer America. Look forward to uh, seeing some more of the st- stories that you are covering. And hopefully next time when you're on, it won't, won't be so much bad news. But when we look at all the lawsuits and everything else going on, I don't know if we're <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be uh, in in um, you know positive uh, positivity land anytime soon. We just got so many issues to fix. But thank you for your work and your coverage of the sport. Uh, uh, we know you've been around a while and you've been faithful to, to keep covering the sport. So thanks for all your work and uh, good luck with Soccer America. We look forward to having you back on again soon. Thank you, and I'd love to be on soon again. I enjoy it. Thank you. That is Paul Kennedy. Appreciate him uh, joining the show this morning. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
thanks to Paul for uh, joining us on the show today. Uh, I really appreciate him uh, dropping in and uh, having a, a good chat with us about all things uh, U.S. soccer, U.S. men's national team, landscape overall, the Federation. There's just so many places to go and have a discussion. Look forward to having him back on again real soon. Thanks for watching. As always, you can watch on Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for watching. We'll see everyone again next week.